Today's episode of Our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At Close of Business, News Briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to the At Close of Business podcast. This is Simone Grogan with your Friday afternoon headlines. St John WA's executive team will be halved under a new group model that recently employed Chief Executive Kevin Brown has conceded may feel disruptive in the months ahead. An internal staff email on Wednesday detailed the restructure, which will involve a reduction in the size of the organisation's team from 11 to 6, with newly created chief officer roles overseeing five distinct streams. It's a marked shift from the current structure, which includes six executive directors, three chief officers and a chief of staff. St John's Health Services will be separated into three streams under the new model, with chief officers overseeing preventative, community and emergency care, the last of which will include the organisation's Metropolitan Ambulance Services. Those duties are at present overseen by a separate executive director. Corporate services, meanwhile, will be cut to just two positions, a chief finance officer and a chief people, culture and development officer. Tasman Haywood, who was last year hired as Executive Director of People and Culture, will retain the latter role amid the reshuffle. While the email says internal applicants are encouraged to apply for the four remaining roles, recruitment firm Gerard Daniels will lead the executive search in what is described as a merit-based approach to the selection process. It's expected the new executive team will be in place in May. Mr Brown is quoted in the email saying the group structure may yet change as new executives come on board and discussions are had about where teams sit within the different streams. St John told Business News in a statement there were no further plans to reduce the organisation's overall number of staff or services, with executives who leave the business following the shake-up to be offered redundancies. Mr Brown said the group model would provide St John an opportunity to improve the way it serves the state's community. Mr Brown only recently started as the not-for-profit healthcare provider's chief executive, having previously served a six-year stint as boss of Perth Airport. His arrival at St John came months after a parliamentary inquiry put the organisation, which operates Western Australia's ambulance service, in the firing line amid worsening levels of ambulance ramping. That investigation, tabled in May, was highly critical of St John's performance, highlighting lagging triple zero response times and understaffing as issues. Michelle Fife resigned as chief executive just weeks after those findings were made public. And in other news, Perth-based online gaming company VGW Holdings has struck a deal to sponsor high-profile Formula One racing team Ferrari. The sponsorship, which starts with the first race of the season in Bahrain this weekend, was described as multifaceted and will feature VGW's branding on the Formula One team's cars, drivers and crew team wear. VGW, which was founded by rich lister Lawrence Escalante, said partnering with Scuderia Ferrari was a rare opportunity to support the growth of the company's online social games in its core North American market and grow the business's global brand. VGW Holdings, which trades as Virtual Gaming Worlds, develops and operates online social casino-style games. VGW Games use a freemium model where players can play for free and purchase gold coins for additional plays. Winnings are not paid out in cash but can be redeemed for real prizes. VGW has more than 1,000 staff globally, with approximately 200 staff in its headquarters in Perth, making one of the biggest IT development employers in the state. And in other news, aged care organisation Hall & Pryor has its sights on an 8,586 square metre site in Palmyra to build its $100 million independent living complex. 
Lateral Planning, on behalf of Hall and Pryor, recently submitted a development application for a six-storey independent living complex and residential care facility to the Metro Inner South Joint Development Assessment Panel. The site is bound by Waddell Road, Stock Road and Canning Highway in Palmyra. According to the application and designs by Hassel, the development would include a medical centre, restaurant and shop. A number of buildings occupy the site, including Melville District Road Board Building, the Stock Road Senior Citizens Club and Roy Eddinger Community Centre. The application said all buildings were planned to be demolished, but a plaque would be set up to commemorate the original Melville Road Board building. The city has planned for Melville Theatre Company to move from Roy Eddinger Hall to the refurbished Civic Main Hall in Boragoon. Refurbishment of the main hall has been allocated $1.1 million in the city's budget. And that's all from me this afternoon. Coming up next on the podcast, Jordan Murray and Matt McKenzie discuss super tax changes and the debate about the purpose of superannuation. Want to live it better? Don't we all? That's why we've created the Better Living Showcase. Two days of presentations, keynote speakers, workshops, masterclasses and DIY kitchens to help you connect the dots in life to reveal the best version of you. We're calling it WA's leading health, wealth and happiness event because that's exactly what it is. Join us on the 18th and 19th of this month at the Perth Convention and Exhibition Centre because it is the only destination in our state big enough to hold this many great ideas for future you. For tickets, go to betterlivingshowcase.com.au. Welcome back to our close of business. I'm Jordan Murray today, joined by senior journalist Matt McKenzie, as always on Friday. Matt, how are you today? Excited to be here, Jordan. Superannuation is the topic of today's discussion, specifically key changes to taxation policy on superannuation funds by Treasurer Jim Chalmers earlier this week. It'll be an increase in the top marginal rate of taxation from 15% to 30% on all unrealised gains or losses. It'll be effective from financial year 26, so that'll be after the next federal election, and money raised will be funding existing operational expenses rather than any new programs. It'll affect around 80,000 accounts. Matt, what's your view on this change to taxation on super? Interesting you say it's going to be used to fund additional uh, existing operational expenses because there are plenty of those, and we've observed on this podcast before that the government doesn't have a revenue problem. It has had a spending problem, and that's not just the Albanese government. That was also the Morrison government because spending was increased very rapidly and revenue also actually increased very rapidly, which is one of the reasons that the deficit has shrunk. Uh, but spending grew more rapidly than what it was doing before the pandemic. So there's definitely a spending problem there. And revenue, I believe, grew more rapidly than what it was before the pandemic. So there's certainly not a revenue problem. But probably a wise thing from the government to be picking on an issue that only impacts a small number of Australians. The number they say is 0.5%. Politically, that's wise. I make this observation, though. We keep hearing about how earnings on super are concessionally taxed. And it's only really a concessional tax if you think of your earnings on your super as being the same as your income. But really, they're not. They're not really the same. Um, Firstly, because you can't use the money in your super account for the most part until either you're in an emergency situation or you get to retirement. Um, You can't use it, so it's not the same as other income. Also, unlike the income you make when you're working, your super balance actually will accumulate. So if you earn, let's say you've got um, $100,000 in your super, let's say you earn 10%, that's $10,000, and then let's say you earn, the following year you earn 10%, and then the year after that you earn 10%, well, your earnings are going to be compounding. The return from the earnings is going to be compounding. So not only do you earn the return on your original balance, you earn a return on 
the return and the return on the return on the return and so on as you go through um, years and years and years, which is why it's a good thing to save for your retirement and start early because the accumulation can be very, very substantial. But the difference between um, an accumulation being taxed a little bit and being taxed a bigger bit over the period of 10 or 20 or 30 years will be dramatic. It's not like when you're earning an income. If your income tax rate gets lifted a bit, that impacts your income, your disposable income this year, next year, all the rest of it. Um, and it's frustrating, but when you tax, you increase the tax on super or you take money out of super, the effect snowballs over a long, long period of time. So really, superannuation income is not the same as your normal income that you earn in a job. And it also has a different purpose, which is to be used in your retirement. A couple of other things to consider. Number one, isn't it good to have high national savings? People are concerned about high superannuation balances. Well, it's good to have people putting money in the bank account it's good to have people saving and investing because that's what creates jobs and creates higher wages. Um, it helps the economy become more productive. It even actually, through a very complicated mechanism, which I'm not going to go into now, when you have higher national savings, it also increases your export competitiveness. So there are a lot of benefits to having your people save. And of course, high income earners, we'd rather probably as a society that they be saving the money than spending it on Lamborghinis. Um, and a final thought, uh, should capital and income tax so should capital and labour income even actually be taxed the same? Uh, we like to tax them the same because it's a fair thing to do, but from an economic perspective, it's an interesting one. There's a lot of debate about this because taxes on capital income over the long term impact wage earners very substantially. A lot of people don't realise that. And there's a lot of evidence you look at company tax, for example, when you have higher company tax rates, it actually leads to lower wage growth over the long term. So there is actually a flow-on effect. Now, of course, the people who are making money from capital are usually much richer than the rest of us, so there is a fairness obligation perhaps that they get taxed on that. But from an economic long-term perspective, it's not necessarily beneficial to be taxing the two at the same rate. Not that I'm advocating changing that, Jordan, but you say? But Matt, if people were to spend their money on a Lambo, they'd be subject to the luxury tax, would they not? That's true. Well, maybe they might spend it on a private jet or... Uh, whatever else, going down a crown and playing Baccarat where they'd be taxed as well. Jet streams and revenue streams. We love to see streams here at that close of business. I've taken some time to consider some of the rhetoric around uh, broken promises over the past week, particularly from the opposition. I note that they have vowed to repeal any changes to the taxing regime of superannuation funds if they are elected in 2025. All I'd say to that is it's not unusual to revisit election commitments if circumstances change, and I'm referring here specifically to the Prime Minister's claim before the election that there would be no change to superannuation under this government. And I think back to a time when I wasn't alive in 1996, I was alive for part of 1996, when John Howard had said that there would be no GST under his government. Circumstances changed over his first term in government, GST came in, Obviously, he faced a tough election in 1998, but he sold that to the people of Australia as a necessity and a tax reform that was necessary in terms of simplifying the tax system overall. And you can see variations on this all the way through to 2019 when there was a lot said about getting the budget back in black ahead of the 2019 or after the 2019 election. And obviously, we never got to see those operational surpluses for reasons that uh, are now abundantly clear to all of us. All I'd say is that the deficit now sits at $78 billion and money needs to either be cut on the spending side or it needs to be increased on the revenue side. And as you note there, Matt, before, the irony of all of this being that the deficit was racked up initially under the previous government. 
We need to be able to have ambitious conversations and mature conversations like we have here at At Close of Business, Matt, about government finances and whether that be about reducing spending or increasing revenue. Uh, we can see examples of this held to political promises made before elections, particularly going as far back as 2013 under the Abbott and Hockey government. I dare say that a modest tax increase of this nature would be an easy sell as possibly a fiscally responsible decision. I, for one, would still love to have $3 million in my super account. Well, you said we can have ambitious conversations. I'm certainly ambitious to chat as a nation about how we can control spending, but that might be for another episode. (laughs) Different sides of the spectrum, same ambition. Matt, this gets to a pretty broad discussion about the purpose of superannuation generally, and we've seen this discussion again extend back to the previous election when there was a proposal by the then government uh, to allow first-home buyers to access funds within their superannuation account to put down a deposit for their first home. We've also seen this discussion play out during this term of government. I know the former Prime Minister Paul Keating has advocated for greater social licence given to superannuation funds to invest in nation-building projects. Matt, what says you on the possibility of superannuation being redefined or having a new purpose given for the nation's savings? I'm not um, too crash hot on either proposal by the Liberals or by the Labor Party. I'm not convinced by either case. I'm, of course, open to being convinced because that's just the sort of guy I am. But I'm a big believer that super savings are for retirement, right? That's their primary purpose, uh, not for a social purpose in the interim and not for buying houses. And the thing to remember is that if people aren't saving for their retirement, then it's going to be incumbent on the taxpayer to pay for it. And I think when we have an aged care pension system, what we want is an aged pension system which is well-funded and targeted to the people who are vulnerable and most in need, not a poorly funded system where um, people haven't saved their retirements and it's stretched over a huge number of people, but they're not getting very much and they're living in poverty. So I've got some criticisms of of both sides on this. Perhaps we'll, we'll get to the social purpose issue in a sec, but what the Liberals are thinking in terms of helping people save for their houses. We talked about this before the election, the usage of superannuation to buy houses. There's a few problems with this. Um, One of them is, I think it's only going to increase property prices. The second one is uh, that it adds to the risk of... It feels like we live in a country where if property prices ever fall, that the economic impact of that is far more substantial than any other country where property prices fall. Um, And it seems like we live in a country where people always expect property prices to go up and where governments will always take action to try and support property prices, more so than in most other places, which is why you would have seen over the past two decades, there will always be commentators say, there's a bubble, it's going to drop, it's going to drop, there's a bubble, and it's going to pop, and it's going to be a disaster. Um, There'll be a, a minority of commentators saying those things, and often they turn out to be wrong. But what I would say is that if everybody's using their super balance in their houses, um, that a, a drop or a big drop in property prices will have a very substantial impact because it will impact people's retirements. Um, I get it that it's not easy out there if you're trying to buy into your first home. Housing is not affordable, but I don't think taking money away from people's retirements is a solution. Uh, I think it's actually a big risk to the taxpayer. It's a big risk to the people who are moving their money. And I'm open to discussion. I'm open to hearing how it might look a little bit different. Peter Dutton, I understand, after the last budget, suggested that he would specifically allow women who had just been separated later in their life, who quite often end up in poverty and homelessness, he'd allow them to take out their balances. And that kind of makes sense if you're letting someone who's 55 or 58 take their superannuation balance out so they can have some housing. 
um, that will probably you know that have a real serious impact on their life. Mm. Um, letting them take it out a few years early, whereas letting people of our age take out our balances early, um, it might help us buy a house, or it might just push up property right prices even further, and houses will still be equally unobtainable. Jordan, that'd be my concern. Mm, excellently said, Matt. I think superannuation shouldn't be spent on housing. I believe all that that will do is further a wealth gap, as people on higher incomes can afford both their home and to have a superannuation balance, while people on middle to lower incomes are left with a sizable chunk of their retirement savings stuck within one property, and then they have the rest uh, sitting in the superannuation account. I think that's inherently risky investment policy and bad government policy. And I think as well, good point there around it stimulating demand when we should be looking at ways to increase supply. Let's look though at social licence uh, overall. Uh, in terms of redefining the purpose of superannuation to focus on nation building, what's your view on that? Well, I also disagree with the government, the Labor government on this one. The highest social purpose that any super fund could ever hope to achieve is to make sure all of its members have the best retirement possible. That is, by its very nature, an implicitly social return. Firstly, from the from the uh, the pure calculation perspective of, well, if everybody has a well-funded retirement, it means that young workers like us don't need to be taxed substantially higher to pay a huge pension bill. And we know that over the decades ahead, that the amount of um, the number of workers per retired person is going to fall dramatically. So we know that there's going to be a lot more of our tax money flowing to that purpose um, and uh, potentially away from investments in you know, infrastructure or other things like that. So it's a, it's, a, it's a problem we have to deal with over the next few decades in retirement, uh, sorry, in society is how we help people through retirement. So uh, that's purely from the financial perspective and the impact on others, but also I think inherently it's a socially good thing to make sure that everyone who's an aged pensioner has a decent retirement and is not living in poverty. I think there's an inherent benefit to doing that too. It's the right thing to do. So if you're a super fund, the most important thing, the most important thing you can do is to earn to earn a return for your members. That is in itself a social return. Now, it's fine if funds want to have other returns. They want to have a different sort of social return. But I make two points. The first one is superannuation funds need to do what they're good at. What they're good at is earning a return for their retirees and making investment decisions, not necessarily trying to impact social issues throughout society where they don't have expertise. And the second point is um, if you take the view that social investments are the investments that generate the best private return, then you don't need to legislate it, you don't need to mandate it, you don't need to mandate it, the government doesn't need to offer any direction. Superannuation funds in a competitive market will move in that direction because they want to earn a higher return. But if it's not the case, then by mandating it or legislating it, then you are necessarily trading one social return, which is the benefit that people get in their retirement, for another social return. And I don't think it's right to do that. Um, one more thought on this when it comes to areas of expertise. Back in the, you know, back a decade ago, I was on a many committees at the at university, and I recall a discussion about the university moving to fair trade coffee. Now, inherently, it's a good thing. Um, we want to make sure that we are treating workers in developing countries respectfully, uh, and that they're getting properly remunerated and all the rest of it. That's entirely fair. But it's worth noting that my recollection, and gee, Jordan, it was a long time ago. I feel like the cost was a f quite a few hundred thousand dollars per year moving from whatever coffee you're using towards fair trade coffee. And I don't think I said anything about this at the time, but something for listeners to consider is this. Universities are inherently a social institution. 
Universities can make a great impact on society by training, by educating our next um, generation of people, of thinkers, uh, either to, to work or to understand the world better or to, um, uh, to have a better cultural understanding of the world or whatever it might be. They can make a very positive impact on young people. They can also do tremendous things through research. And that's what universities are good at. That necessarily means, again, that when a university does things, it's generating a social return by doing what it does well. And when it moves, uh, when it uh, tries to spend money on other social issues, by necessity, it's moving away from where it generates a social return and is good at it to something else where it has less expertise. And to just give you an example, let's say it costs a million dollars over four years to move to fair trade coffee. Well, wouldn't it be better to offer a million dollars worth of scholarships to young kids growing up on coffee farms? Wouldn't it be better to offer to invest a million dollars into research into helping those coffee plantations um, survive diseases or be more productive or whatever else? And that is where a university has great expertise and an expertise more than anyone else does in society. So this is where the social return thing becomes a very complicated topic because, of course, it's the right thing to do to um, help communities in developing countries, but what is the best way to do it? Is it through the simple the fair trade coffee method or is it through other methods like the scholarships or the research? And it's, it's worth considering. It's different, of course, if you're a private business and you want to adopt fair trade coffee because it's the right thing to do and you want to make an impact out there in the world in a social sense, perfectly valid. But when you're an inherently social institution, like a super fund, potentially, or a university, um, then you've got to make decisions about which social return you need to optimise for, Jordan. I think we should always be leery of governments trying to outsource their own jobs to somebody else, whether that be privatisation or, in this instance, Hang on. having superannuation funds fund nation-building activities. And certainly I'm not against policies that would encourage investment in something that might be risky but will have a social return, particularly green energy, renewable energies. Uh, but when we start talking about superannuation funds propping up operating expenses, I think we should be critical of that and we should say, well, why is the government not doing this? and then come back to our original discussion around the purpose of taxation and spending. Hopefully we can have more ambitious and mature conversations along those lines in the future. To read more of the latest news and analysis from Business News, head online now to businessnews.com.au or pick up the latest edition of Business News. Natalie Sarich-Dayton of Browns is on the cover of that one. In the meantime, Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. Today's episode of Our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase.